You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We're so glad you're here with us. I have a very, very special guest today, Dr. Jay Yadav, an iconic contributor in medicine. He's been a part of major contributions in stroke, heart failure, and now biotech with better solutions for implantable devices. He is very much a Thomas Edison of cardiology and musculoskeletal. It's been great getting to know Jay over the years. We've gotten to work together on some great projects. And today you're going to get to hear his story about absolutely his vision for the future of the face of medicine. And so, Jay, thanks so much for being here with us today. Tommy, thank you. Pleasure to join you. You know, Jay, our audience loves hearing people's stories and you have just such an incredible story. I mean, it's truly a story of the American dream. I absolutely love it. So I know you didn't start out with this idea of I'm going to go change the world of medicine, but you had some incredible parents that helped facilitate that. So how did that come about? Well, thank you, Tommy, for all for having me on today. And thank you for the kind introduction. You know, you're right. In some ways, my life has been the American dream, as it has been for so many others. My parents came here in the early 60s looking for you know a chance. They were from India and they were looking for a better education for themselves, for their children. The land of opportunity has been said many times. And they were both academics. My father was a sociologist. My mother was a psychologist. Uh, and I was really lucky. I spent my childhood living on, on a small college campus in North Carolina in Salisbury. And a lot of exposure to a lot of interesting people, to a lot of academics. And particularly, you know, the 60s was an exciting period in terms of NASA and the space race anyway. And, but we happened to live very close to the college observatory. And they were really nice to me and would let me wander there and look through the telescope and learn things. And so th- that really was my introduction to science and led to a lifelong interest in science. And Jay, ultimately, you decided to go into medicine, went to med school. And then how did you choose what residency to do? Because I know, you know, there's the matching program. Like, did you originally say, yes, I want to go into cardiology? Did you know that or did that just happen? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. And just even deciding to go into medicine, Tommy, for me, it wasn't sort of preordained. It wasn't like I went to college thinking I'm going to go into medicine necessarily. As I mentioned, I was really interested in science. And my major interests when I was at Yale was were physics and chemistry. And But I was also really lucky to get a broad education. And particularly the Yale Divinity School had a number of tremendous professors and classes and learned a lot about life in general and the big problems that confront all human beings. In one of those classes, we were fortunate to read Gandhi's autobiography, My Experiments in Truth. And that was very influential for me and really transformational. And I felt that it was important that, you know, I love science, but how would it impact the average person? Astronomy is a little hard to make a connection. Medicine seemed like a good compromise, science-based, and yet really help people who needed help. And so that's how I ended up, you know, going to medical school. And then I actually was going to cure cancer. That was my goal. So, you know, big, hairy problems, right? And then when I was doing my residency at Duke, we're talking about the early 80s, you know, (laughs) oncology wasn't terribly sophisticated. 
On the other hand, in cardiovascular disease, there had been some revolutionary changes that had just happened due to a gentleman named Andreas Grunzig in Switzerland. He had really revolutionized cardiovascular treatment by creating angioplasty. It was considered heretical at the time. He immediately got fired in Switzerland, but luckily Emory gave him a job in Atlanta and he came to the U.S. and really changed everything. And so that was happening right during that time. It was very exciting. And I saw that happening. I said, well, this looks really cool. And listeners, for those of you not in the medical world, angioplasty was this revolutionary way where instead of having to crack the chest open to get to the heart, instead, we're going to go through the arteries in the groin and get to the heart so that we don't have to have major taking your ribs out type of surgery. And so this was completely revolutionary at the time. Absolutely. And it was one of those simple, elegant, revolutionary ideas. And so I was watching that happen. And, you know, we were doing a number of different rotations when I was a resident at Duke early in my residency. And and we got to see different types of areas and different patients. And so one of the rotations was on the neuroservice and taking care of stroke patients. And a stroke is very much like a heart attack, right? It's a blockage of blood flow, interruption of blood flow leads to cell death in the area. When it happens in your heart, we call it a heart attack. Happens in your brain, we call it a stroke. Very similar mechanisms. And what struck me, and when you were young, you sort of ask questions that we stop asking sometimes when we get older. But one of them is, you know, why can't we do that here? Right. And that's the question I ask. Why can't we apply these same technologies to the arteries going to the brain? And, you know, the answers were, well, the brain is different. You can't do it. It'll kill the patient. You know, all the usual things, which some of them make sense. But I felt like solutions could be created that could use this type of technology because these stroke patients really did very, very badly. You know, all diseases are bad, but it's hard to imagine something worse than a stroke, which leaves you unable to talk, walk, communicate with your loved ones, really in a vegetative state, potentially. So I decided that I would go into cardiology, but focus on stroke. It'll solve the problem that nobody was really focused on. And it it took a long time. It turned out there were a lot of challenges, uh, both systematic uh, silos, you know, all things occur in silos and people like sticking to their silo and don't really want you getting out of your lane. So there's a lot of issues. I'm sure people experience it in their jobs and corporations and at every level. It happens in healthcare as well. And then there were some scientific challenges as well. So, but, but anyway, I persisted and had a lot of support from my family and, and had some good mentors along the way. And that's really how we got into creating companies. Because I created a new approach to fixing the arteries going to the brain and in the brain, it needed some new solutions, some new devices which didn't exist. And I tried just to get people to make them. I just tried to get the big companies to make them. I didn't patent the idea or anything because I just was trying to make the create the procedure. Uh, nobody wanted to do it. They didn't see the market or opportunity, right? So everybody declined. And then uh, I finished my fellowship and got a job and a you know, tiny bit of money which with my wife's blessing, I bet on creating what was called AngioGuard, which was a key component. It was really a filter to make sure any little tiny particle did not get into the brain that could then block the tiny arteries and cause a small stroke. So it was really a very small transient filter. Hired an engineer, started a company because you have to create a company to you know hire people and stuff. That's really how it happened and learned on the job. And we were you know very lucky. 
the first device we created worked, which I can tell you now, you know, a few decades later, that is really a low probability event, you know, that the first device worked. That rarely happens. It rarely happens, right? And Jay, just to make sure I understand, this was basically, you created a way to kind of use that same angioplasty technology that they were only using for the heart. And you created a way to apply that same type of go through the artery in the leg to be able to protect the brain and use a similar process. Am I understanding that correctly? You stated that much better than I had. That's absolutely correct. And one of the big concerns was that, you know, the heart is a muscle, little tiny particles going to the muscle. They're not good, but they're not a catastrophe. The brain has eloquence, has eloquent areas. One piece of the brain has different importance to the patient than another piece of the brain, right? So you really want to do what you can to eliminate any little arteries getting blocked, right? So that was the logic behind needing emboli protection. I subsequently turned out that emboli protection helps in the heart too. But Hmm. at that point, the focus was a more precious area, shall we say, the brain. They're driving this balloon angioplasty through the arteries and all along the way, they could accidentally knock off particles. And for one of those particles to block a part of the brain, we may end up with a patient that can no longer talk or exactly. have yes. you know really critical life function. And you came up with the first method to help make sure as we're driving through that tunnel and we knock those particles off, that plaque off, that it wouldn't actually go hurt the brain. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And all the while you were building this company, Jay, you were still a practicing physician. Is that accurate? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. No, I was at the Cleveland Clinic. Like I say, I'm very lucky. I had a great family, very supportive wife. And, you know, God has given me a lot of energy. We keep going and get it done. Right. So, yeah. And I had good people. I was able to create a good team of people, good engineers. And so luckily we didn't have much money. So we had to get it right. And we did get it right. And the device worked remarkably well. Everybody was amazed. And it also provided evidence that embolization did occur because these particles are very small. You can't really see them, right? And you you, uh, sort of can't see them during the procedure. It was very effective. And then we had a tremendous amount of interest from some of the biggest medical device companies, a company called Guidant, and and then Johnson & Johnson, and then Johnson & Johnson eventually won the bidding war. And and so Andrew Gard became a part of Johnson & Johnson. And then very importantly, we completed a large randomized trial to evaluate the technology. And this randomized trial was national in scope, several hundred patients, and showed definitively that doing angioplasty and stenting with emboli protection was safe and effective. It was actually the lead article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it now has gone on to become a standard of care. It's a level one recommendation for both the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. So I'm very proud of that. Which is like the gold standard in the space. Yeah. To get to guideline therapy in medicine takes a long time. It takes a lot of evidence because medicine is by nature conservative, which is good. We want to make sure that ideas have been tested rigorously and there's lots of data supporting them before we make it a guideline recommendation. So, so I'm very pleased that we met that level of evidence. That's fantastic. And Jay, after you sold that company, uh, a lot of people just kind of called a day. Hey, had a win. That was just the beginning 
for you. I feel like every time you go tackle a problem, you tackle a bigger one. And so what was the next problem that you went after? Like I said, as at the beginning time, I really didn't go into medicine with a monetary goal. It was really to do something useful with whatever ability I've been given to apply to things that, that can help you know the average person. And so I was really interested in stroke still. And I had a good friend named Irani Bose, who was a neuroradiologist. And Irani had come up with a very clever idea to create the first intracranial stent and made out of nitinol, which was pretty novel at that time. So he asked for my help, and I was the one of the first investors and, and board members of that company. It was called Smart Therapeutics. Smart Therapeutics is historically very important as well because it is the first intracranial stent. And it, it got acquired by Boston Scientific, and it really is a foundation of all modern intracranial stroke treatment. You know, you and your audience members have probably have seen that we can really treat stroke now. Uh, and using clot retrievers, stent retrievers, and there are you know, 10 companies now doing that. But that's all based on that technology, that company, which fundamentally, again, it was one of those things where people say, well, you can't put that inside the brain. You, know, you can't do that. And it turned out you can do that. It's actually very effective, right? And that's also now a level one recommendation of the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association. So so those, I think, we've really, you know, really improved the treatment of stroke, which, which I think was real much needed. I was lagging really far behind heart disease. And then somewhere around there, you know, I was watching, seeing more and more patients who had heart failure. And I think what had happened was that because of the efficacy of some of the things that, that Andres Grunzer created, and, uh, as well as other developments, we got pretty good, certainly in the U.S. and, and, and other westernized countries, of taking care of people with heart attacks. So now these patients don't die from the heart attack, but do have some heart disease and do suffer some heart damage, and then can go on to develop heart failure. And heart failure really accelerated in the 90s and 80s and 90s, and so it really became an epidemic. And these patients are frequently ill, they're frequently hospitalized, put on a ventilator, and they really get a form of PTSD almost because they're being hospitalized so many times. And their families are very traumatized too. And at any time they go in the hospital, you put on a ventilator, you know, you're pretty sick and you might die. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough problem. And, and I was thinking about it, and the issue there seemed to be not one of a better treatment per se. We didn't need a, we had a lot of drugs that were pretty effective, lots of things. We just didn't know when to use them. And that was part of the problem. So it was an information problem. The problem is the information you really need to precisely treat that. Because you can't just give them more medicine because that'll kill them as well. So it's got to be just right. And the information that you need to do that, we traditionally get by doing a cardiac catheterization, putting a little tube from your leg or your arm into your heart and measuring things very precisely. Well, clearly you can't do that all the time. So, well, how would you get that information every single day from the patient's home? So the doctor or nurse could see it and intervene, you know, two weeks ahead of time before they became decompensated. And that was, again, at that time considered just a crazy idea. What year was it that you were thinking about this, Jay? This is like 2001, 2002. Oh my gosh. So like, you know, today everybody's talking about remote patient monitoring. Everybody's talking about it, right? telemedicine, remote care, it's all, you know. So CardiMems really is the foundation for that whole line of thinking and doing it in a very precise way. And the key here was not just telemedicine, 
but getting information from inside the heart all the time and without inserting batteries and leads, which are very problematic in the long term and very expensive. So we really wanted to create a, you know, solve the problem in a very elegant fashion, a wireless, batteryless implant, which was, again, thought to be a lot of contradictory things. Fortunately, we were able to come up with some solutions. We had a great team, a lot of help from Georgia Tech, great engineers. And we created the first medical device, which is a chip, which is wafer fabricated. We created our own chip foundry of wafer fab at Georgia Tech on their campus and created a device which now, again, it's gone through multiple randomized trials, published in the Lancet, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Nature. Uh, it is now also a level one recommendation of the American Heart Association because it really improves the outcome for Heart failure is our largest public health problem, by the way. It is the single most common serious problem that hospitalizes and kills people. So we have 6 million heart failure patients just in the U.S. So that is really making an impact. It's a very simple device to use. doesn't need to be an interventional cardiologist. Your general cardiologist can put it in. It's owned by Abbott now. Abbott purchased that company, and they've done a good job of deploying it globally. I'm very pleased with that and how that's making a difference for a lot of people. So to this point, you're three for three on solving big problems, turning those into level one solutions, but you still weren't done. You decided to tackle an even bigger problem. So tell us how that came about. You know, I'm a tinkerer, so I'm always just playing with things and thinking about things. And one of the things I was thinking about was if you look at all implants across disciplines, cardiovascular, orthopedics, neurosurgery, whatever it may be, they're all based on two elements, titanium or cobalt. That's it. People might be surprised. That that is it. Everything is a combination, but these are the base elements. And they're fine. They're not, it's good that we have them. It's allowed us to do a lot of things in, in medicine and surgery. They have limitations, right? And so how do we improve upon that? Right? I mean, you know, we've had great cars for years, right? But an electric car seems to be better in a lot of ways. So, so that's kind of the idea. How do we make things better? Again, you know, chance favors a prepared mind. I think Pasteur said, right? So this is, you know, something that's bothering me. is thinking about it. How do we make it better? And then I happened to be speaking to a, a, a very close friend of mine who was a patient of mine as well, but we become very, very close friends. He was an industrialist and owned uh, a lot of companies around the world, including what was the former Westinghouse Nuclear Laboratory in Pittsburgh, which was a tremendous facility. This is back when, you know, American corporations did real fundamental science like Bell Labs and so forth, right? Xerox Park in Palo Alto, where they made huge investments in fundamental things. These guys had made a nuclear rocket engine for NASA, which actually worked. I don't know. A lot of people have never heard of it, but actually functioned. And as a part of that program, they had to create better materials. And one of those was molybdenum rhenium, rhenium-based alloys. Rhenium is the last stable element discovered, which if you think about the periodic table, is pretty remarkable. It's discovered in the 1930s and a stable element. So uh, it's pretty new in the game, right? So these guys that really worked with it, developed how to work with it, figured out the properties. And and my friend Saul said, well, talk talk to my guys here, see what they can do, see what you need. And they said, you know, we think this alloy with some adaptation could be very useful and solve the problems you're looking to solve. The problem we're looking to solve, we wanted a stronger material and a more fatigue-resistant material. 
and a lot of buy compatibility and a lack of recalls. We wanted a bunch of, it was really like a Goldilocks kind of, you know, wish list of, of properties. And that's why they kind of honed it on this material, which is a unusual material. And it is one of those things, it's strong, but flexible. You know, it's a tough combination in human beings as well as in materials, right? So, and that's what this material does. And it has a amazing fatigue life. So, which is what we really care about in implantables, right? Whether it's your spine, there's a lot of movement in the human body, right? And we want to preserve that movement. So there's a lot of fatigue in your heart, tremendous amount of cycling, obviously, right? Even a higher level of cycling. That's one reason in the heart, we can't use titanium at all because it's too fragile, right? Titanium has, you know, we think it sounds great. It's a great name, but it's actually pretty fragile and doesn't fatigue well. So working with these great metallurgists, with their help, we developed a rhenium-based alloys, molybdenum rhenium, and some other ones for specific application to medical devices and medical implants. It took a long time. It was a decade of work, but we got it done. A great team of people. And in 2019, we got FDA approval for the first molybdenum rhenium implant, which again, nobody thought would get done because the FDA is very concerned about implants, particularly after the big cobalt chromium recall for artificial hip that you may have heard about a few years ago from Johnson & Johnson, a very large problem. So the FDA got very concerned about existing materials, cobalt, chromium, titanium, but also any new materials. So the level of science we had to do was very, very high. And we did, you know, it was far more intensive than what actually the large device companies have ever done on their implants. Uh, and the FDA was very pleased with the level of science. And this material is so much better right, is so much better, both mechanically, strength and fatigue, but also in terms of the metal ion release. So what happens in the body when you have an implant of any kind, you know, nothing is static, right? Everything is changing. That's the nature of the universe. And so all implants release some level of metal ions into your body. And that amount as it turned out, these cobalt chrome hips can be quite large, large enough that the patient does not do so well, right? Including at remote sites in the brain, et cetera. So it is really crucial that we minimize the amount of metal ion release, which is what this material does. So you have long-term safety as well. You don't, it just shouldn't break and should have long-term biological safety. So we're really excited about that, getting that done. And then you know, we've been applying the technology to key areas. We start out in spine. Spine surgery is very complex, large implants, very complicated, a lot of potential failure modes. And actually, the current implants have a pretty high failure mode, up to 20% in deformity surgeries. So we're able to create a material and a rod that does not break. We actually offer a warranty that if it does break, we will pay for the next one, for the next surgery which nobody's done. So we're very excited about that. We're about to go into foot and ankle. Foot and ankle also has a lot of implant failure issues. Makes sense. A lot of loading the foot. The skin is thin. The implants tend to be prominent. You can feel them. It's uncomfortable. So we can make the world's thinnest implants because the material is so strong, which is what we've done in the spine as well. So now you've got much better tissue coverage. They're not going to fail as often. So we're very excited about that. The foot and ankle surgeons are very excited to see that. And then we have also initiated a couple of years ago, a program for the aortic valve, the you know, what's called TAVR or transcatheter aortic valve replacement. 
This is a very large area, which has really replaced classical, surgical, open chest kind of valve replacement, and it is made out of cobalt chromium. Now, cobalt chromium is okay. I don't, I don't want people to get scared by cobalt chromium, but it's got some issues. It can't get terribly small. It can't get any smaller. And right now, although it is better than getting a sternotomy, it is a large device to go through your leg. And as you can guess, most of these patients are elderly. A lot of them are women. So there are a lot of vascular complications. There's, there's always a challenge. So we're able to reduce the whole thing by 30 40%. So the delivery system gets a lot smaller. So it's a profound difference. So listeners, just to put that in perspective, what what Jay's talking about here is a device that starts in that same artery we were talking about earlier for the angioplasty. They're actually sending a heart valve now through that artery up to the heart, and then they deploy it in the heart. Once they deploy it, it's about the size of my thumb. But down at the artery level where it starts, Right now with cobalt, the smallest they can make this thing is about the size of my pinky. Imagine sending a pinky through an artery. Like even if it can fit, it's not pleasant. And then imagine if we could shrink that down to the size of my pinky nail. And that's what Jay's talking about. And Jay's such a humble guy. It's like understated. This metal, molybdenum rhenium, was the first metal approved by the FDA in something like 34 years. I mean, for three decades, we went with cobalt-based and titanium-based materials. And then Jay and his team, I mean, and I love the chance favors the prepared, you know, having a patient, world-class metallurgist team, allowed him to dream about how could we just do such a better experience, something that, you know, when we say biocompatible, we're talking about lower infection rates and the ability for bone to grow more efficiently. And then the size isn't just impacting, can you feel it, but how big of an incision do we need to make when we put this in your body? And then when you start to talk about a heart valve, I mean, this part of medicine is on track to be a $16 billion market in the next four years. I mean, this is massive. Nobody wants to go in and get their chest cracked open to do something in their heart. And when you can talk about using something that's going to be the size of my thumb or bigger and being able to insert that through the leg instead of cracking open the chest. I mean, this is just revolutionary medicine we're talking about. So, Jay, I want to make sure none of that's lost on our non-medical listeners. It's just so powerful. So thanks for letting me interject. Back to you. No, that was great. No, thank you. Yes, I kind of forget about some other things. So, no, you're absolutely right. And that really captures and and. Uh, the reality is right now, there are only two valves in the United States for TAVR available. One is from Edwards, and they're both great companies, and the other one's from Medtronic. And the Edwards valve was a cobalt-based valve. The Medtronic valve was a nickel-titanium-based valve. And, and I didn't talk about nickel, but nickel is, our listeners probably are aware of all the nickel issues with allergies and so forth. So we really want to create a safer, better choice for these patients who are pretty sick. And so the last thing they need is more issues in terms of the, the material used in the implant, as well as dramatically reducing the size. So as you said, Tom, you get a less invasive surgery. And that ultimately, and I should have mentioned that sooner, that's really what we're doing in spine and foot and ankle. When we started the conversation, Tommy, right, we were talking about th this dramatic revolution with angioplasty and, and going to less invasive. So you're not getting your sternum split open and 
you know, a very invasive procedure to something much less invasive where you can go home the next day. Well, that is the trend in medicine, right? No patient ever comes to us asking for a larger incision. No one says that or a larger implant. That's not, you would not want that for yourself if you're a patient or for your family member. So that is one of the major drivers of what we've been doing all along the way is making things less invasive. And this material fundamentally lets you do that. Because at some point you run out of, you're using the same material. You know, if you're building with stone and masonry only, right? And you're a great architect. You can build the Notre Dame, which is beautiful, right? Which is beautiful, still there, right? Fantastic. Once you're given, once you're given steel, though, you can build the Eiffel Tower, which is not so far away. But you can see what happens when, in this case, doctors, surgeons are given better tools. That's what we're doing, right? We're giving a fundamentally better tool that lets clever people come up with much better solutions, which they couldn't have done because we just, we're just working with the same old stuff. So that's part of what we're doing. And we're, that's why we have so much engagement from fellow doctors, spine surgeons, cardiac surgeons, foot and ankle doctors, who all really have been looking for a better, less invasive solution. And they're the subject matter experts. They can come up with the exact design. What we're providing is this much better toolkit for them to work with. I love that analogy. It's so great. And it's exactly what you've been up to at Miris. And, you know, Jay, we get to move into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. So the first question is the question everybody wants to know. And what I like to say is it's actually the question I want to know. Jay, if you had to give two to three words of wisdom or advice to those budding entrepreneurs out there that may be listening in that they want to go build a scalable company. What advice would you give to them? You know, work on a big problem. That's generally not what entrepreneurs are told, right? Because, you know, just try to get on base, do something simple. And I'm not disagreeing with that. But to me, first of all, you've got to be interested and passionate about it. Generally, that's a, you know, at least for me, is that that's an interesting problem that doesn't have a obvious solution immediately, right? So that, and it makes a difference to a lot of people. So to me, that's critical. It should be a real problem, a meaningful problem, not some trivial little thing that, yeah, great, you know, it's a better doorstop or something. So to me, important problems really impact. In, in healthcare, we're focusing patients and impacting them. That's crucial. Make sure that you have some competitive advantage, now, what does that mean? Generally means, you know, you're not a large company. You don't have a competitive advantage in terms of resources or people or distribution channels. So your only competitive advantage is going to be your brain and a solution that you've come up with that is better than other solutions, which should be protectable. So that you, you have to have some competitive advantage, generally in the nature of knowledge solution space. Thirdly, I'd say, Understand, and this is all very you know specific to healthcare, I suppose. Understand the regulatory and reimbursement pathway. As important as the technology, are you gonna have to create the regulatory pathway? Does it exist already? Does reimbursement exist? You're gonna have to create it. Those are massive undertakings, and those should be factored in. You know, always raise more money than you think you're gonna need. That's the other little little rule of thumb, right? Whatever it is. It's going to be more than you think. So just get more. Try to get the best people, not the second best people. 
that again may sound obvious, but it is really easy to just compromise. Try not to compromise. You know, some compromise never really happens, but really try to avoid compromise, avoid compromise on people, on the quality of the products. The other thing I tell the engineers often is let's not transfer the burden to the user. Let's transfer the burden to ourselves. Because it's, you know, often in any kind of complex product design, you can decide where it bifurcates. You know, we'll have three more knobs for the user to fiddle with, which will take care of it, right? Versus there are no knobs. So try to have that approach. It's, it's a little harder, a little, little more problematic uh, in development, but ultimately I think you lead to a better product, better user experience. I love that focus on the client or the customer, the patient. Uh, a lot of times that gets lost in convenience for the practitioner. And at the end of the day, we talk about the balanced scorecard framework on our show, Jay, but that idea, if you want to have a highly profitable, highly valuable business, work back through the chain. How do we do that? Well, make sure we have something our patients or clients or customers absolutely love. How do you do that? Have outstanding world-class processes in place to help make sure you do that. And how do you get those world-class processes? Well, hire world-class people. And that's what I heard you say as well. You know, don't compromise. Make sure you get the best people you can. And thank you so much for sharing that. Now we go to the real question, which is the real question everybody wants to know. In your case, Jay, I think, you know, we have a lot of medical practitioners that listen. If they want to learn more about what Miris is up to, what's the best way for them to reach out to the company? Yes, you know, we've got a great website, a lot of information on the website, and they can feel free to email me. I think my email's on there and uh, delighted to communicate with them all. Always like encouraging other healthcare professionals to, if they have an idea to pursue it and uh, whatever help we can provide. And we're certainly happy to discuss what we're doing at Miris as well. So what types of surgeons would Miris want to be talking to? Yeah, really, you know, we've got a very, because it's a fundamental material play, it really cuts across essentially all of medicine. Our focus right now is spine, and spine has neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons. And spine is very diverse. There are many different types of spine surgery, many different implants. So we're delighted to talk with them. We're entering foot and ankle, and then we will segue into upper extremities. Well, foot and ankle and upper extremity are very related and very similar. So very similar implants with some modifications. So we're entering that right now. So again, big areas, big, big areas, right? So we'd love to talk with the foot and ankle people, podiatrists, the orthopedic surgeons, the upper extremity, the hand surgeons, the orthopedic surgeons, other upper extremity applications, and then structural heart disease. So delighted to talk to cardiac surgeons, interventional cardiologists. We have an active aortic valve program. We will also have a mitral valve program, which will segue from the aortic valve program. So we're really trying to offer a broad portfolio in structural heart disease. That's incredible. There's some other applications as well, which we, we, we have not targeted right now, but they're, you know, hips, knees, et cetera. We're sort of, it's a lot of things. So we're, we have a, you know, a plan where we target where we think we can make the biggest immediate contribution. That's incredible. So uh, listeners, if this is something that's right for you, for your practice, please get in touch with Miris. The best way to do that, you can go to mirismed.com. That's M-I-R-U-S-M-E-D 
com, And we'll put that link in our show notes as well, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Well, Jay, we really appreciate you coming on. This has just been absolutely incredible. It's been so fun to work with you on projects and get to know you. You've been an incredible mentor. So I'm just so grateful. And I know our listeners are as well. And listeners, we can't do this show without you. You've been so incredible to grow this beyond what we ever expected. Please continue to share the show and leave feedback. That helps other listeners find us. So thanks for being here today. And we'll see you right back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc. Mammoth.